gentlemen, welcome to The Financial Mentor with David Boyer. I'm your host, David Boyer, and it's so good to be back for our second episode. Thanks to those who tuned in last week and shared with your mates online. We really love doing the show, and I've got an even bigger jam-packed one this episode. We're going to talk about Australian billionaire Anthony Pratt, the massive documentary out on Netflix, Fire, about the biggest party that never happened, about how to hire when you grow, about changes at Ticketek. We've also got an interview from one of Australia's most exciting Neo Banks up. I sit down with Dom, their CEO, for an episode of The Pitch. And our futurist in residence, Kieran from The Futurist Project, and I sit down to have a chat about is, is tech failed? Have we passed peak tech? Is tech just everywhere? What's next for tech? Stay tuned. Here we go for a great show. This week, some of the big power brokers and most influential people went to Davos to meet at the annual World Economic Forum. Last year, it was made famous because Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin squared off in a very public embrace. But this year, those two elites weren't there. It was, however, filled with some of the big power brokers. Oxfam came out with a stat almost a bit critical of the World Economic Forum. 26 people on the earth own as much wealth as the 3.6 billion others. If you're a business owner, no doubt you are out there scrambling and fighting and trying to grow your business to build that wealth for yourself and your family. And a lot of people like to use this to talk about the income divide, uh, the wealth divide, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. But for me, it makes me think of billionaires. And one of, I can't believe I'm saying, I have a favorite billionaire. My favorite billionaire is Australian Anthony Pratt. Of course, Dick Pratt's son, who now runs the Vizzy Empire, a Vizzy, one of Australia's great companies. This guy runs his own social media and it's brilliant because it's filled with the sort of typos regular people have, his own opinions about business and about society. There's lots of lessons in there, but there's one tweet in particular that I absolutely love. He signed a new customer for Vizzy and puts a video on Twitter of him almost tap dancing in this expensive suit in this luxurious looking uh, apartment or palace that it looks like that he's in. And I just thought, here's a guy, he's worth eight, nine billion dollars. He's chairman of a massive global company and he is bold enough to jump on social media and celebrate signing what he calls a big box client. That sort of leadership would have to be infectious in a company that cares about growth and cares about its customers so much. I thought it was so entertaining because usually when you see billionaires, it's really structured and media managed and PR driven. Jeff Bezos is so rigid. Uh, Zuckerberg's always surrounded by lawyers these days, but here's a billionaire just celebrating that greatest thriller business, signing a new client. In other news this week, Ticketek is going through a big, big restructure. And you may say, who cares? What's a restructure? Well, if you're Australian, and particularly if you're a Victorian, and particularly if you tried to buy finals tickets, AFL finals tickets, you no doubt experienced Ticketek crashing. In 2016, the Western Bulldogs, my dear beloved Western Bulldogs, made the finals 
we got it unexpectedly deep. And because of delays on Ticketek, my father and I ended up with seats so bad that we ended up rebuying tickets on the secondary market to get better seats. And we're full AFL members. We've been full AFL members since 1994. We're diehard fans and we should have got better tickets. Ticketek site keeps crashing. And in response, Ticketek has essentially globally restructured to bring the tech team in line with the customer success team. So these guys are going to be working together. The reason why this matters is because it changes the focus of the business. It puts the people who solve the tech problems closer with the people who are dealing with them as they happen. And there is no doubt that Tech have a tech problem because this happens every year. Every year they somehow don't predict the demand of AFL final tickets. Structures and restructures are often really boring You often hear about it when public companies do it and they add back the one-off cost of a restructure to try to come up with a profit figure that they think the market's going to be more palatable with. If you're running your own business, it's a cost, it's a cost, it costs you money. But having the way your team structure and even sit next to each other inside your business is really important for measuring what's important for sharing your values as a business owner and getting some collaboration and agility amongst your different teams together. For me, I always say finance teams should be out in the middle. They should be talking with the business. They should be overhearing what's important to decision makers in the business. And that way they can help uh, come up with financial information that helps other people in the business make better decisions. Uh, I don't think that financial people should be put in a corner. Nobody puts finance in a corner. But I think the ticket one's really exciting because there was there's so much noise in the Attention when their tech fails, but when they're actually doing something internally to manage it and deal with it, well, that doesn't get as much headlines because it's not as sexy, but this is the stuff that makes a great business or just a mediocre business. You would have to be living under a rock if you did not hear about the fire documentaries on Hulu and Netflix over the last couple of weeks. Fire was a party billed to be the party of all parties. It had influencer marketing to the nth degree. The show, one of the documentaries on Netflix says that they paid Kardashian, one of the Kardashians $250,000 for one Instagram tweet, feed, post. $250,000, that is remarkable. I watched the Fire documentary with my wife and we had these jaw-dropping moments and I was trying to think the last time I had these jaw-dropping moments on a show that's largely about a failed business, and I remember when it was. It was in the Enron movie, The Smartest Guys in the Room, where they have on tape two traders talking about deliberately creating a brownout in America so they can jack up electricity prices to meet their budgets. And your jaw drops because you think, how do they get? A, how do they think this is okay? The Fire documentary is riddled with an entrepreneur who wanted to build something truly great, had a bold vision, a grand vision, had a silver tongue, could talk his way through investors and try to create this absolutely monstrous party. They spent a fortune on marketing and sales. It sold out, it oversold. And they didn't budget a single cent for actually delivering what they said they were going to do. It turns out to be an absolute debacle and there are so many lessons from it. In response to fire, the concept of influencer marketing really changed. Um, You sort of have to declare in most instances, it's heavily recommended that if you have a paid post on social media and you are an influencer, that you need to declare that you've been paid to talk about it. But I started thinking about this and I thought, well, Influencer marketing isn't new. If you're a B2B salesperson or if you're a B2B business, you're selling to other businesses, we rely on influencer marketing all the time because most B2B business deals are done through referrals. Hey, I know someone, you should talk to them. I had a great experience here. Go check them out. 
Word of mouth marketing is the cheapest and most sustainable way to grow a business. It also means you usually have a good business because people wouldn't be talking about you and recommending if you weren't good. There's uh, lots of examples where you would also use influencer marketing even on your average business's website. Most businesses have customer stories and customer success stories to try to create the illusion that you, a prospective customer, should shop with them, should buy with them, most importantly, should trust them. Now, I must admit, over at SQLCFO.com, we don't have our customer stories up there yet. We're working on it. We've got some great ones out there, but we haven't got it yet. So I kind of know that I need to do it, but just in running the business, I found it really hard to find the time to go and interview our customers and write great copy and tell the story really, really well. Um, But influence marketing in the B2B space is is as old as it can be and we don't necessarily pay for it because it's all about trust and integrity. And I'm not so sure that some of these social media influencers have a lot of integrity because you now have a case where Emily Ratajkowski and some of the key supermodels who promoted the Fire Festival are now being brought to court because of payments they received promoting an event that didn't happen. But you go back on companies who have used influencer marketing, SAP's used influencer marketing to try to create great content for their ERP solution. American Express used influencer marketing to try to create this luxurious lifestyle uh, and paying for it all on your Amex, which I don't know, if you like points, you like points, but that's usually just a trap to get you to use the card and get you to pay some interest and fees. Your business probably uses influencer marketing. If you've ever asked for a referral or if you've asked somebody to refer someone to you, that's what B2B influencer marketing is. Fire is a phenomenal documentary and I strongly recommend you watch it, whether it's on Hulu or Netflix. There's just so many business lessons to take from it. The next thing that we want to talk about is this concept of time management. I struggle with it. I always think that things take nowhere near as long as what they actually take. And I always underestimate how long things take. This has impacted me in the past where I've got scope wrong, budgets wrong, or when I've just gotten to the end of the week and thought, geez, I haven't done anywhere near what I wanted to do this week. And it's all my fault. It's because I didn't consider how long things were supposed to take. This was made really popular. This idea was really spoken about on a book from a few years ago called Thinking Fast and Slow. I bought the book. It's a bloody tough read. I bought it when I was in Byron Bay and that's not really the place where I can deeply read and focus on an almost academic book on why my brain works in different ways. But being able to manage our week is really important. This came from uh, actually a comment that was made on the Serial podcast, really popular podcast. Serial Sarah Koenig made the comment that she's continually shocked at her wildly inaccurate estimations of how long things take to do. There is no quick fix for this, but understanding the way your brain's hardwired is a good way to get on top of your week to maybe actually get you over this planning fallacy where we always think that things don't take as long as they do. The best tip, have a look at how long it takes other people to do it. Because even though we like to think we're not, we're better than everybody else, we're not. And I think that's a great way to benchmark yourself against other items that are out there. Next up this week is a question that we get asked a lot from our clients. And I saw an article about it over on Smart Company about how to improve your hiring process. When you're growing, hiring is critical. You have to find and attract the right people, but also you need to manage it so that it works really efficiently and quickly. And so I wanted to share this awesome product that we know and we've used called Vervo. Vervo allows you to question and engage 
sort of really um, multi-choice type processes for people to apply uh, for a job that you do. And it almost kicks people out by the fact that they don't pass the tests that you put in their way. Now, it's very easy to say, well, a lot of this stuff's out there. Uh, there's always a lot of tests, acumen tests and these sort of stuff, that sort of stuff that's out there. Vervo is a Melbourne-based startup. Uh, they work out of a co-working space. Uh, that isn't how I knew about it. But um, but essentially what they say they do is they use AI-powered skill testing to hire the best people. And it's the skill testing part of this that we think is absolutely brilliant, particularly if the job that you're hiring for is a technical job. Check it out at vervo.com. That's it for the wrap this week. Here for the pitch with Dom, CEO of UpBank. If you haven't heard of UpBank, head over to Twitter and have a look at all your tech-savvy mates who are posting pics of their orange debit cards. Dom, let's start. Give us the pitch for what UpBank is. Uh, Well, UpBank is a, it's a digital bank and to be really short and sharp, it was the only next generation digital bank with banking product in market in 2018 in Australia. What, is, uh, what problems do you solve? Why aren't you a normal bank? Well, you know, it's interesting. We've been working in the banking industry for about eight years now and uh, we, we build the fifth largest banking platform in Australia, which is with the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. And so all the brands under the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank um, b- banner, um, uh, some would be familiar, others not, like Bendigo Bank or Adelaide Bank or whatever. Um, so we have a lot of experience in the banking space and we have partnered with Bendigo in order to, officially we call it a collaboration, um, uh, in order to bring up to market. And Bendigo provide the licensed financial product and uh, we are an independent software company here in South Melbourne. <laughs> so we build technology. And uh, you know, like, I guess from a customer's perspective, they don't really care that much about that sort of stuff. What they, what they, the industry care, you and I care, but, but what, what the customer cares about is, is this better than my current banking experience? That's, that's it. Uh, I've jumped online. I haven't signed up yet. I tried to, but I was on my computer and it said it was going to send uh, something to my phone and it didn't work. I think I got distracted, so it's probably yeah. my fault. Uh, I go online and I can have a look at what up is. It is brilliant user experience. Your sign-up process, I had a bit of trouble. I think it was my fault. It happens in seconds. Like it yeah. literally takes seconds to open an account. How have you gone through the process? And and your products are pretty simple as well. It's a savings account. It's a savings experience because you in real time tell customers what they're spending money on and where it's going. How did you research what your ideal clients wanted from their banking experience? Because my Westpac app does most of what I need. Yeah, yeah. I don't like paying international fees. And I put my thumbprint on the back and it works. How did you go through that process? Yeah, look, I think um, banking is a solved problem. So people yeah. don't know that they want something new or better or different until they see it, feel it and touch it. So the sign-up experience, as you mentioned, is something we put a lot of energy and effort into. So you can sign up for an account. We, we say in less than three minutes. We have a video of one of our guys here doing it in one minute and, I don't know, 25 seconds or whatever. Um, but, you, you know, you can do it real quick uh, is the point. It's, it's mobile only. So that's why when you would have been on a website, if you're on a website, it'll, you know, refer you to, yeah. uh, to the App Store yeah, or, or to the Google Play Store. So uh, being mobile only means that we get some advantages around security, around biometrics, around location, around all sorts of things that you can do in a mobile context that's more difficult to do. But look, I think, um, well, I know the the last time I checked the reports, there were 55 million uh, customers of Australian banks. And that's more than the population, which means that if you look at just uh, the 18 million adults in Australia, the average adult has, you know, three bank accounts approximately. Mm-hmm. So 85% of those bank accounts sit with the big four banks. So it's a solved problem. 
It's also in Australia the uh, apps are awesome. Like the, the, the big banks have done a great job at building digital channels and building great apps and all the rest of it. So I think the bar is very high. So basically to answer your question, what we did is we had a look at the market and we had our own frustrations. We also, as I said, uh, build the um, Bendigo and Adelaide Bank uh, platform and the Bendigo Bank platform has 800,000 monthly active users or more. Um, and so for us, we know what customers are complaining about and we've been building this tech for a long time. So, so the technology is one piece and then what the customers want from product is another really interesting piece. You, you just threw in like no international transfer fees, or no international payment fees. Mm. Um, you know, for travelling and for younger people, that's really, really important. Mm. Um, and it's just another fee that, um, uh, you know, you can find other ways to make that revenue. You don't have to uh, hit people every single time they want to do some banking. It's also very macro level. I'm looking around your office here. You do not have the costs of a big bank. You literally need less revenue to make more money. True, but we also look at how we can. Uh, I mean, that, that, I guess that's the pitch of any new or any neo bank that comes along. Says that we can do it cheaper, faster, more efficiently, more effectively, and you know, better for customers. Um, that that's kind of a given. That's your sort of basic platform. But actually, what we've been able to do and what we continue to fight for is to build a bank that is uh, self-funded and profitable. And that's very different than what you'll see in most of the banks overseas and the locals who raise hundreds of millions in, in mm. uh, venture capital who uh, then want to do a public listing or want to, um, uh, you know, uh, find rapid growth so they can then have convert those customers. Whatever. We're about growing, obviously, rapidly and very fast growing, but we're also about making sure that all those engagements, you know, affect the balance sheet. You know, we've got to be profitable. Yeah. Right? And one of our key tenants is to, to hit that profitability for each customer. Let's talk about the growth. Yeah. How fast has it been? Uh, it's been quite extraordinary. Over the Christmas break, um, it's sort of dawned on the rest of the world how fast we're growing. But we launched in October and you can imagine in those first few weeks we had a few hundred people, a few thousand people, whatever, um, just sort of tickering along. Um, but, but over the Christmas break, we started adding sort of um, around about 500 or so people a day and then the first week of January we're between sort of 500 and 1,000. We've had a few days now of over 1,000 customers a day signing up. Um, so you know, it would be up would be one of the fastest growing banks, if not the fastest growing bank in Australia. Uh, and you can see on the App Store, we, we know we did some tweets about um, we, we hit number five on the App Store. Um, the only two banks in front of us were Combank and uh, ANZ. So it's very fast. To get that fast growth, business has been running for eight, seven, eight years. Yeah, the the, yeah. So we've been around. We've been around for do, working in the banking space for about yeah, about eight years. Yeah. What has been some of the really big challenges? Because it's not all the glitz and glam of rapid customer sign up over you know a yeah, well, couple of months. Yeah, well, so so because of the collaboration with Bendigo, up in, in in its form actually went to production in 2017. So so back in October 2017, we, we went to production with up, and then we tested it with 1,500 users for an entire year. Yeah. So it's not an overnight success. It might be from the public's perception, but we've been working on this for years. And a year of operating in production and testing everything and rolling out new features and da da da. da. We're at the point now where we had a target to release uh, five customer deployments or software updates a day, uh, which is very fast compared yeah. to any company, Google, Facebook, whatever, let alone a bank. Um, and and in November, as the latest numbers I had, I'm sure it's still around this level. But in November, we uh, exceeded ten customer deployments a day. Um, we only launched in October, but we had a year's or 18 months worth of momentum sort of behind us. So I think what you'll see is in the first half of this year, a bunch of other um, uh, competitors coming in the market and up really releasing a whole bunch of new functionality and features and capability uh, beyond where we are now with just spending and saving. 
uh, savings is a big part of, mm. of the product and when I went on and I looked through the website, savings to me looked like much more of an experience than a bank account that attracts fees, which yep. is what I get from Westpac at the moment. Um, I'm keen for your thoughts on where you see savings and spending in the market. Big report came out, credit card spending was down, afterpay spending is through the roof effectively and we got all these headlines that millennials are shunning credit cards. What are your thoughts on this and what do you see in your customer base? Well, I think like maybe to reel it back a bit, I mean, millennials are shunning cards like plastic. So it doesn't matter whether it's debit or credit or whatever it is or loyalty or whatever it is. Millennials are interested in digital technology. That's the first point. The second point is, um, generally speaking, the subscription economy or the app economy or whatever you want to call it nowadays is, you know, Gen Y and sort of beyond are not really that interested in uh, paying fees but they are happy to subscribe to things they want and that really comes down to customer choice. So what we see is that someone's prepared to pay for a Netflix subscription and the price goes up, they're happy to keep it, but they won't want to pay and they'll be quite grumpy about paying a monthly fee for a bank account. Like it doesn't logically make sense, but it's all in the customer choice. If you're forced to pay a fee, you fight against it. If you choose to pay a fee, you're happy to pay more. So I think you can be profitable and you can have models that work in that way. And what Afterpay have sort of proven, I guess, and not just them, but uh, ZipPay and, and OpenPay and all the pays, what they've been able to demonstrate is that if you can offer a no fee, no interest and no fee product to consumers, you'll achieve rapid growth. You then still need to be profitable and they make profit in the back end from merchants. So I think we will actually see card use and particularly credit card use declining significantly. It's just you know, the, the, the current view and we're seeing it happening now. Um, but what we'll see is that behaviour sh- of using other people's money shifting to, say, digital, which is what's ha- what we're seeing with, say, Afterpay. There's um, a part of the big reason for that incredible growth that you've had is really slick branding and marketing. Like the car jumps off your screen when you see pictures of it. Um, there's been some great articles written about your branding that's gone out there. And I jump online now and, and I occupy a really geeky group of people of super tech savvy accountants, people who have been using zero, you know, cloud-based accounting software since it came on, seven, eight years. And we're all, they're all jumping at their skin to get this. But I go on social media and people take photos of their up product and share it on social media you, you this is pr you can't buy it. you literally yeah, can't, buy you can't buy it i mean it but it, 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 i mean we're uh, obviously pleasantly surprised with how excited people are about it that's awesome but we also put a lot of energy and effort into building something that people could share um, so simple things like taking the private details off the front of the card. Um, so, yeah. You know, like a, you, what you'll see with some of the sort of, let's say, more famous example globally, whether it's from Bank Simple or, or, or others, is that, you know, they put a ribbon over the front of the thing or people put their thumb over it or, or whatever to try and hide the details. So, so I think a lot of thought went into it and I would just say it worked. Like people mm. – and it's great. And, and the other thing is we iterate on physical things, in this case a welcome pack and a credit card or a debit card in this case and a, um, a sticker pack and things like that. We iterate those things in the same way that we iterate software. So we try something, we do a small run, maybe 10,000 or whatever, and then we see how that um, resonates with uh, with the customer. And if customers love it, then obviously we, we look to tweak and improve it. But if there's something they don't like, um, then we'll change it. And so, you know, you said the colours, right? The colours jump off the page, sure, but we have a really strong and broad colour palette. So we're using pinks and yellows and oranges and all sorts of different colours now, whereas when we first started, we really just had kind of the salmon orange and a sort of bluey black. 
Um, and now over time we've kept those colours but we've also added a whole sort of palette and that's, I think that's made a big difference. Um, we've spoken about types of customers that you have. We've spoken mm. about a bit of customer acquisition, how you found out what they wanted. There's a few neobanks neo coming to Australia. That's all very exciting because everything new and shiny is exciting. Are you all going after the same market though? Uh, I think in general the answer is sort of yes, when you pull it apart and dig into it, it's basically the big four have 85% market share. So, And if you look at the mid-tier, the big mid-tiers like your Macquarie's or your ING or your Bendigo's or whatever, um, they're all going to lose market share to new players because where, where is it going to – it's not new customers. Like, it's eating out of the same pie. As I said before, banking solved. Everyone in Australia has three bank accounts. So what we're trying to do is get people to try something new, experience what it's like to have this new tech or this new security or these new features or this new product or whatever, and then if they love it, um, that's great. Now, in terms of is everyone else doing the same, it seems like there's a lot of new players that want to do something similar. But I would suggest that each one of them has sort of picked out a niche that they're going after. Uh, and you can see uh, when you look at the different players what sort of target market they're going at. And I guess for us, we very, very clearly define the consumer, the customer that we wanted to go after and we haven't offered a broad offering. Although um, what we find is that we've got, you know, I think our oldest customer is 85 years old and, um, <laughs> you know, our, 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 our sort of younger customers are 16. Um, and so there is still a broad group of people but it's definitely skewed between sort of, you know, 18 and 25. Yeah. Um, we spoke about uh, products a little bit. Do you have any product developments in the pipeline, any lending products coming? Yes, we have heaps in the pipeline. We, we'll probably – we're looking to publish a bit of a roadmap for people so because we get asked the same questions every day. Um, Sorry. No, no, no. It's interesting. Fine. We won't know. Yeah, yeah, but the sort of questions we get asked are, you know, um, uh, what are you doing with Afterpay? And we've made a small announcement, announcement last year, but we, we are uh, making uh, – we're going to release that product to customers probably as early as next week. Um, uh, we get asked, uh, what are you doing with home loans? What are you doing with credit cards? What are you doing with personal loans? What are you doing with overdrafts? Um, what are you doing with investments? What are you doing with insurance? You know, so there's a lot of that sort of comes at us. All of those things are on the radar um, and they'll all be rolled out. Uh, there'll be bits and pieces rolled out in 2019, but they'll all be rolled out eventually. I'm looking at, out of your podcast room at a pretty trendy office. Um, there's about what, 30, 40 people in your team. Yeah, 29. 29. Oh, not bad. There we go. My spatial relations is <laughs> increasing as I get older. I failed that on an IQ <laughs> test when I was 18. Uh, that's why I became an accountant. The, um, the, how's your team structured and how do decisions get made in a business that's about to go through tremendous growth? Yeah, so it's a tricky one. Like when we, when we uh, originally, we were, as I said, working with Bendigo for a long, long time and, and we work on projects that have hundreds of people. We also worked with some of the big banks, the big four banks and so on. Um, and so typically a project would have hundreds of people on it. Our goal with UP was to, uh, for Ferocia, for in this office here, for us not to grow beyond 30 people in order to bring a new bank to market. Now, we have the luxury that some of the other competitors don't have of working with Bendigo when we can rely on their risk, compliance, legal, uh, you know, bankers, whatever we need, foreign exchange, all that sort of stuff. We can rely on that. So we haven't had to uh, grow as quickly as some of the other uh, neo banks have had to because a lot of that, you know, we're a software company through and through. Um, and for us, it's a conscious decision. We will automate something or we will try and solve problems with software rather than just adding new headcount, new people all the time. Um, if, if a problem is worth solving, in our view, it's kind of worth solving properly. Um, and really uh, automation and software can do that at scale much better than if we added five extra people. Dom, thanks very much for coming on the show. No worries at all. Happy Cheers. to be here. Right, I keep in touch.
Joining us again on the show is Kara McKenzie from The Futurist Project, and we are here to talk about uh, get behind some of the big tech issues of the week and work out how they relate to our small and medium business or if they do it all. Mate, you've picked up a cracker of an article this week to have a chat about. Absolutely. Technology is dead. How's that for a start, right? Right. Uh, I find that very hard to believe. We've got our show running on uh, Google Notes. We're in different locations. We're recording on a Zoom call. Surely technology's not dead. Talk me through it. No, look, it's it's really, really fascinating. This this article in The Atlantic came out this week uh, around technology is dead. Uh, almost needs the tagline of, but long live technology. Uh, what they're sort of getting to is this idea of if technology is everywhere, then does the tech sector really exist? I mean, that comment in itself is kind of fascinating. You think about the fact that we've got med tech, rag tech, um, ag tech, bank tech, fintech, insurance tech, everything's a tech thing. And so at that point, is it really technology? And one of the big things they called out in this is that if the tech sector no longer exists, then its premium is no longer justified. And I think we're starting to see that coming through in the valuation of businesses and the activity that's going on in that sort of space. So, you know, yeah, maybe we're saying it's... I always sort of get so suspicious when the media come out and say something's dead because it's never dead. Like I've been told that the accounting profession's going to be dead for the last 15 years and we're all thriving. So that's just impossible to believe. I think when media say something's dead, usually what they mean is... The era of something going super or supercharged growth is dead or the way it currently works is dead. So it's like tech tech isn't dead. Like as I said, we are on we're using a lot of technology right now just to produce our show. But the way in which the business models of technology have worked has it's almost like yeah. it's not innovative anymore. It's worked and it's now commonplace. Yeah. So what else? Exactly. Exactly. And I think the reality is, um, and I've, I've run this before, and I think you and I have talked about it before, is that people are jaded. We're tired of hearing about the tech. We want to hear about the value. I want to hear about the impact in my life. I'll get really passionate talking about med tech, but it's not that I'm passionate about the AI or the machine learning behind it. I'm passionate that it's impacting a human life. It is giving something back to a person. Uh, and I think that's where society's kind of got to this point of going, we're tired of hearing all about Bluetooth and artificial intelligence and Wi-Fi and things. Now we're just going, I want to bank easier. I want to buy my stuff simpler. I want to run faster. I want to be healthier, right? And that's where, yeah, technology is dead. The age of the value or the impact of the customer is starting to come to the fore. I always believe that, you know, as an accountant, as a financial mentor, I don't need to worry about artificial intelligence. It will just be in the products that I start using for my clients. Uh, it'll just come through and we'll start, yeah, we'll start totally. putting it in place. Things like robotic process automation have been around finance teams for 20, 30 years now. It, and the advent of machine learning and technology isn't really changing the pace at which robotic process automation is being implemented in finance teams. The, the big part of this article, though, is that, and, and I'd like your thoughts, mate, the publicly traded tech companies, the, the super profits aren't there and the super valuations aren't there anymore. Yeah, I, I think we're starting to see that that change, right? We talk about bubbles all the time in this space. We talk about uh, overhype, overvaluation, uh, and there's some classic examples. We've only got to look at Snap, uh, wonderful company behind uh, Snapchat and such like. Uh, they launched 
March 2017 at something like $27 US uh, valuation. Today they are $6 US. You know, it's not enough to be just a tech company doing something uh, in the tech space. You've got to have value and purpose. Uh, we've seen Apple, Facebook, Google all go for record margins this year, so record, record valuations this year. I mean, it was Apple was the first company to hit a trillion dollars. And yet now they've all fallen massively in the last few months because there's pressure on them. There's um, frustrations on them. People are just getting exhausted with the tech talk and going, well, what is this actually adding in my life? And, and as people say, what does it add in my life? They're saying, what am I willing to pay with and part with? So what value is yeah. You say the company needs to create value. I say, well, yeah, but it also needs to capture it and produce financial results that stand up long term. You've still got a case at the moment where yeah. Afterpay, a, a new darling of startup and tech scene, is trading at 100 times their 2020 earnings. Right now, though, it's making a loss. That yeah. company's still getting a tech 100% that's getting a tech premium. Oh, absolutely. And you'll always have standouts. You'll always have um, you know, exceptions to the rule that are out there. But, but I think a couple of things that have sort of changed on this, on this way through is that people are becoming much more aware of what's going on. So one of the things that's driving some of this, and this comes to um, uh, focus that's going to happen within the Afterpay space. In fact, it's already starting to happen, but with Facebook and others, customers are aware that when a platform or a product or something is out there and you're not paying for it, then you are the product, right? So that speaks to data. What is Facebook doing with my data? Where's that money coming from? How's that being driven uh, in that sort of space? And who's making money on my data? Uh, and that, I think, is sort of the, 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 the uh, implication of what's happening in those big platform plays. So these platforms, you're suggesting that, that, that the ad model, the ad business model is now just considered to be normal for platforms. It's going to be price normal. And, and that's just, that's what business is now. It is. But we're, the revolution right now is that I don't want to see ads. You know, you think of TV. I don't see ads on TV because I'm on Netflix or I'm on, I don't see, listen to uh, radio ads because I'm on Spotify. Um, I don't see ads on my computer anymore because I've got an ad blocker installed. Um, so that's changing the model, right? They, the ad revenue is vaporizing for these businesses. Well, they also get in trouble, don't they? Because like you can't, there's only so much attention that we have. You, you've got TV fans say that we're in an era of peak TV, meaning they can keep producing quality TV shows there's only so many eyeballs to watch. So that when, when people talk about tech being dead, they're talking about platform-based technologies that rely on attention. It doesn't matter what you're selling in business, somebody is deciding to spend their time with you, which means you have to be damn good because there's just getting more and more and more of them. But is, is there a solution for this? So if tech's dead, in inverted commas, because we've just defined what dead means, is there a solution? Because you also ended this with long live tech. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and I think I, I like what um, Anderson Harowitz uh, phrased this as saying perhaps it's not the end of tech, uh, perhaps it's the end of the beginning. Right. As look, people like you and I, we've been 20, 30 years in this tech online space building businesses here, but it's still very much just the beginning of technology. We're talking about things like quantum computing coming rapidly into the space. We haven't even scratched the surface of what that technology will mean for medical or for insurance or for fintech. So I think we're very much at the emergence 
of a new norm. I think technology itself, the language of, hey, I'm a tech business, will become BAU. Every business should be digital and be technically uh, minded, but in the application of that for your client. And so we'll get back to, I'm passionate about solving this problem. And I go out and do that, leveraging technology, levering that stuff. But I don't need to talk about it all the time. I'm just a keen business person trying to solve a problem for you. Uh, see, for me, this is, we're now going back to business as usual. The hype of, of the whole world's going to change is now over. It's not going to become like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in Total Recall all of a sudden. You know, we're not suddenly living on Mars straight away. You'll have a few entrepreneurs who are trying to change that. And this is just business as usual for me. So you've got the article and, and check out um, our show notes to get a copy of the article. It talks about Nike getting, you know, acquiring a health tech company or, or, or collaborating with an insurance company, even owning an insurance company because a health insurance company because its job is to just help you run. This is what conglomerates do. I mean, in the, in the old world, this is just what industrials and financial stocks did. They would buy and acquire companies that they could then cross-sell and cross-market to the same customer base. And it, it's been, you know, it's almost been parodied in 30 Rock where with, with Alec Baldwin, who his job as an NBC executive is just to push more GE product through the NBC audience as he can. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the same business playbook. It's just... Um, maybe a bit more customer-centric now because you can identify customers in a more nuanced way than you used to be able to. Absolutely. And there are so many different ways now of reaching that customer, engaging with that customer, and understanding what that customer is feeling at a point in time. Of course, we're gathering data from them, we're gathering feedback from them, we're knowing where they are, we're tracking them. And so you can really build at scale that customized, personalized feeling for that customer, um, leveraging all this sort of technology. So I think you're right there. We're going to see um, this change, uh, change in some ways, but I think it's just the reality of going back to business as normal. It's going back to just being really there and caring for your customers. So I think the lesson for, for business owners out there is really simple. It's customers love what you do and what you provide them with. Yep. What else can you give them? I think the other part is don't get distracted. You know, understand what your customers are. Focus in on it. And constantly, when you're exploring new technology or new tools or new gadgets or gizmos, constantly ask, just like you would about a chair or a car, is this adding value to my business? Is this really helping my customer? Or is it a distraction? Um, you and I were talking earlier. Sometimes these things are nice to know because you just need to be across them. Other times they're great to know because they're going to make a tangible impact in your business. Karen, thanks for coming on the show, mate. How can listeners get in touch with you? Well, they can find me on Twitter. That's at Karen M, K-E-R-A-N-M. No I's or Y's or anything else in there. Or thefuturistproject.com. Brilliant, mate. We'll chat soon. We will indeed. Cheers, mate. Financial Mentor with David Boyer.